0: From MDMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams.
1: I'm yet to see a disclaimer on the mission, vision, values, saying, um, except for when we're busy, except for Mondays, you know, except for when Marjorie is working, you know, there's no disclaimer. So when you put it out there, people should expect it.
0: That's Kristen Baird on culture's role in a successful medical practice. We'll hear more from Kristen on the power of customer service, the lasting impact of positive and negative patient experiences, and the influence of the first phone call. But first, a word from our sponsor. Are you a healthcare professional who always has the bottom line in mind? Then you're not alone. Join others just like you at MGMA 20, the financial conference, March 5th through 7th in Nashville. This industry-leading conference is designed to arm medical professionals with the education and tools needed to run a more profitable and efficient practice. Whether you're a CFO, accountant, physician, consultant, or other related position, the Music City is where you'll want to be this spring. To learn more or to register, Visit mgma.com slash tfc20. Making a good first impression is vital to the success of any medical practice. In fact, the power of the first phone call has proven to be more impactful than most healthcare professionals might imagine. Baird Group data shows that a startling 35% of prospective patients would not choose a facility based on their initial call. That's a third of a practice's potential client base, lost solely due to poor customer service. Today's guest, Kristen Baird, is a thought leader in patient experience. She's also a consultant, author, speaker, and the president and CEO of the Baird Group. Kristen, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: As you and I had talked about online, um, today we're gonna talk a lot about the patient experience we're going to talk about customer service, and we're going to talk about how those aspects of the medical practice are, in your words, a direct reflection of the culture. Um, but I did want to pull back just a little bit. Before we get too deep into that topic, I want you to tell our audience a little bit about your healthcare journey.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Well, I'm a registered nurse and that background has really given me a passion for patient care you know I always knew that I wanted to have a future in health care and I found nursing extremely fulfilling um, you know I worked in critical care obstetrics I worked in public health I even ran a triage call center before um, moving into marketing and business development in healthcare. care and uh, from there I realized there's no there's no business if you don't have a great customer experience. And uh, in the ne- early 90s, I was going back to graduate school and I did my thesis research on patient perceptions of quality in clinic settings. And um, it was a little ahead of its time because when we talk about quality in healthcare, we're usually talking about clinical outcomes. And what I wanted to know was the patient perception. And so as I started to work on my research, you know, I found very quickly that people would talk more about how they were treated, not medical outcome, you know, but how they were treated personally. You know, they talked about things like respect and was I listened to and was I kept informed did they care about me? Those were the kinds of things that were really surfacing. And so that's where I really started to put a lot of my focus on patient experience. And at the time, it wasn't really called patient experience. It was more customer service. And it was way ahead of things like CGCAP. You know, and at the time, I would ask providers, you know, could I study your patients? Would it be okay if I administered the survey to them? And, I can tell you, a lot of them chuckled, you know, saying this is all soft stuff. You know, this this customer service stuff doesn't really matter if people come to me because I'm a skilled um, medical provider. And um, a lot has changed in the past couple of decades with the advent of the cap survey You know, there's there's an old adage grab a man by his wallet and his heart and mind are sure to follow. And with the CG cap and with, you know, um, other cap surveys and the threat of reimbursement being put at stake, there's been a lot more attention paid. Um, And the same thing too, and, you know, we'll get into that a little bit later, but um, meanwhile, as I was doing this work, um, and really studying about um, the patient experience, I started to implement some customer service strategies and tactics in the organization where I was working. And I found success there, uh, which actually gained some recognition from Press Ganey, uh, because, you know, they're a survey company that we were using at the time and uh, they gave recognition for the improvements that we were seeing on patient satisfaction. So I used a lot of those. Uh, lessons in my first book, uh, Customer Service in Healthcare, um, that was released by the American Hospital Association in the year 2000. And there, you know, I was setting forth fundamentals of what really had to happen to create the culture, you know. And since then, I've worked with hundreds of organizations, you know, helping them to to understand their current reality, you know, and we use things like mystery shopping and culture assessments, but then helping them to optimize uh, their their patient experience through training, development, and process improvement. Mm-hmm. So that's really been the course of my journey.
0: Sure. You said something interesting there. You said mystery shopping. Uh, wanted you to elaborate on that a little bit. what do you What do you mean by that? What's mystery shopping?
1: it's really observational research and that is where we have uh, people that are trained to they are trained observers and uh, they go through all of the steps that a patient would go through from the very first phone call to you know a patient visit and they evaluate what that experience was like and they give feedback you know we we call that information from several mystery shopping or observation visits and we look at the facts and the feelings you know so instead of okay the wait time in the waiting room was 10 minutes you know we we get that information but then we ask what else was happening in the waiting room during that period how did that make you feel were you kept informed of any wait times how did that make you feel so they they reveal not only what happened as the facts, but also how they felt every step of the way
0: Mm -hmm. I wanted to go back to something else you talked about. You got your start in nursing and that it really gives you a unique perspective because you've had the nursing side, the hands on side of that patient experience. And now you've done a lot of, you know, philosophical and theoretical research. So what did that nursing experience for you really inform you on the patient experience and, and what's that what that's like?
1: yeah it really was vital to shaping the work that i do today um you know i very fundamentally i've always believed that healthcare is the ultimate human service you know it it, it comes down to one human being caring for another and i found that in those care relationships you know there's a sacred trust at play and that sacred trust can never be taken for granted, you know, and as a, as a nurse, I really respect the fact that when people reach out to us, um, they're reaching for help, you know, and, and they're at their most vulnerable physically and emotionally many of the time, you know, they need us to really meet them where they are without judgment, you know, because really that's the foundation of empathy is
0: mm-hmm.
1: able to suspend judgment. Um, we've got to assume a neutral position, suspend judgment in order to really show empathy. And I also learned that people um, expect us to know what we're doing medically. You know, they, they, that is a given based on the fact that we got all these initials behind our names and the sign outside the building says that we're a medical facility it's not enough to just focus on the credentials you know people have to trust every step of the way and I I always say you know we're in in a the business side of it is more than delivering the proper medical services at the right time we're in the business of trust mm-hmm. and every moment of truth every touch point that a patient encounters from that very first phone call, through the visit, through the follow-up, every moment is a chance for us to build or erode their trust. So, you know, and and I'll give you an example here. You know, take, take for instance, somebody um, has read an article about a provider who is doing incredible work, let's say, with children with seizures, you know, and if you have a kid with, seizure disorder you read this and you're excited and you reach out for more information but when the phone rings the attendant puts you on hold right away and without your permission and and then they don't come back for several minutes and then when she does she's rude and she has a sharp tone you ask a question and she sighs you can practically hear her rolling her eyes and she seems impatient with you and when she closes the call, she doesn't bother summarizing or even saying goodbye. It's just click, you know, you've made the appointment and click. Um, and you have to wait three months to get that appointment. And in the meantime, they cancel twice and reschedule it with no explanation after you've, you know, changed your work schedule, arrange childcare and transportation only to have to do it all over again. Then when you finally arrive for the appointment, you're treated rudely at the front desk and wait two hours beyond your scheduled appointment. Nobody bothers updating you during the entire wait time. So, how do you feel so far? So, Daniel, just in what I'm describing, mm-hmm. if you were that patient, how would you be feeling?
0: Yeah, uh, like a like a a number, like a uh, <laughs> a product of some type, but not as a human being uh, being uh, administered to
1: that's right and so that's my point the patient hasn't even met the provider you know they Mm -hmm. they read about this great work they haven't even met the provider and already they've formed strong opinions about how they're feeling about the organization and at that point a lot of times people are just they're lumping they're lumping um the people at xyz clinic are fill in the blank you know however they're going to describe them you know People at XYZ Clinic treat me, and if I use your words back to you, treat me like a number, right? They have not even met the provider yet. So chances are good they are sharing their thoughts and feelings with other people. And it used to be that it was word of mouth. You know, these would be people you'd talk to face-to-face. Now it's word of mouth because with the click of a button uh, with social media, you're connected with thousands of people in an instance to tell
0: your story yeah you had mentioned earlier that you've worked with hundreds of organizations so you've you know built a body of work you've seen some themes that fall follow uh, throughout organizations where uh, practices no matter how hard they're working they're still falling short in delivering good uh, patient care a better patient experience where are those biggest, biggest roadblocks, then?
1: Well, you know, I, I'd like to step back just a little bit and, and say that the roadblocks really are, you know, the impediments are because of a long history of healthcare setting up processes and systems to make things work well for the providers and staff. Okay, so there's a long history of that where we weren't really focused on taking the patient experience into consideration as we set up our processes and systems. You know, the biggest impediment really in in today's world has been trying to shift to be more patient-centered, you know. And you have to do that at the same time while you're running an efficient, cost-effective organization, you know. But I want to point out they're not mutually exclusive. You can have both, and you know. So the biggest impediment is is probably that when you're not seeing through the lens of the patient, how does the patient interpret what we're doing? Um, and and how are we being? Are we including them? Are we informing them? Are we um, making sure they understand? So. The biggest impediment has been not bringing patients into the dialogue. You know, we're in the age of consumerism. Our patients are more savvy than ever before. Um, they're consumers who are more involved and questioned more than ever before. Um, so that, I think, has been the biggest impediment, is that we, we haven't kept up well with an age of consumerism.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, in previous conversations you and I have had, you've talked about the role that culture plays in making all of this work. Uh, There's often, there's so much talk about culture in medical practices. I, I tend to worry that people will just roll their eyes like, oh my gosh, just another process or tool or technique to roll out. But you've got some really unique perspectives on culture. In a recent blog, you wrote that culture in its simplest definition is how we really do think, how we really do things around here. Um, I'm just curious, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I, well, I, I can't tell you, Daniel, how many times that I have walked into medical practices and I've seen beautiful mission statements and value statements on display, maybe in a bronze frame or something, or a brass frame, and behind glass, um, saying this is who we are, this is what we stand for, and, and they're promising words like quality, compassion, excellence, patient-centered care, only to find that the people processed and placed really aren't delivering on those words at all. They ring hollow. When you promise things like compassion right but the registration person doesn't look up at you when you approach the desk or when you ask a question she's rolling her eyes it's clear that there's a huge disconnect between the words on the wall and how people are living right are they connected to that at all does the culture um you know does is the culture really aligned with the promise and with that are the behavioral expectations aligned so you know when i give the example of the person who might be rolling her eyes or rude or playing on her cell phone when you approach the desk you know to me when i see those things it means to me that the culture has made it okay for those types of behaviors to not only exist but maybe even dominate all right so what you permit, you promote. And so if the culture has been permitting those things, they're actually promoting them. Mm-hmm. And so most most organizations have their like mission, vision values on their websites, too. And what I find is the majority of patients are reading up about the patient experience and about the providers online before they even pick up the phone or you know, click to to schedule an appointment and I'm yet to see a disclaimer on the mission vision values saying, um, except for when we're busy, except for (laughs) Mondays, you know, except for when Marjorie is working, you know, there's no disclaimer. So when you put it out there, people should expect it. And there's, you know, when you don't see it, there's a disconnect between the statement and the culture.
0: Okay. Now, the article I'm referencing that you wrote is entitled, uh, Unwritten Rules Shape Culture. And I'm just wondering, what are the unwritten rules of a medical practice?
1: Oh my gosh, there are so many. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many unwritten rules. Um, But if if I could, I'll give you just a couple of examples that I have seen. Um, You know, some can be really subtle messages in some in, in cases. Um, and, and one that can be very toxic is the, uh, a practice, unwritten rule, that tolerates staff going around the manager and going to providers to get what they want if the manager says no. <laughs> so the, the written rule is the manager is in charge of hiring, firing, and daily operations and those responsibilities, right? But the unwritten rule is, listen, if you don't get what you want from the manager, go talk to Dr. Jones because he will understand, he will decide what's what, you know. And Dr. Jones will decide if you're going to be disciplined for, you know, um, not showing up on time for the last month. Um, you know, those are unwritten rules where maybe they're publicly pulling rank on the manager, and this this sends a message to the staff that if, you know, if one says no, go to the other, and it's disruptive to say the very least, and, um, you know, the written rule is we are a dyad, the managers and the providers, our dyad, you know, approach to leadership, and this is how it is, that's the written rule, but how people really function might be, you know, the unwritten. Mm-hmm. I've also seen unwritten rules like um, you know, even though it's not anywhere in the writing, never schedule Dr. Jones after three o'clock on a Friday, <laughs> especially on nights of home football games. <laughs> <laughs> and heaven help you if you do. Right. You know?
0: Exactly. Uh,
1: another one we we um, uncovered, you know, that it's it's kind of comical in a way, but when we do mystery shopping calls. We are told things on the phone that when we bring them back to the leadership, they're they're flabbergasted. And one is, um, you know, let's say you're calling to make an appointment with Dr. Jones, and um, they're being told, let me take down your information, and I will talk to Dr. Jones, and he's going to decide if he will see you. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what are the decision criteria here? Right. (laughs) Is it, you know... It, and I actually had a patient say, it sounds like a private club, you know, do I need to learn a secret handshake too?
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so,
1: yeah. So anyway, those are just a couple of examples. Right. They don't all have to be negative examples. You know, some can be positive examples too, but, um, you know, on how we treat one another, you mm-hmm. know, might be written rule, you know, where we might say, um, you know, we treat people with compassion, and and maybe it's not as compassionate, or maybe it's a really warm welcome, and it's just how you do things around here. Mm-hmm.
0: How should a uh, a practice handle these unwritten rules? Should they actually write them down somewhere or share them in some way? What what can what can they benefit from anything uh, dealing with these unwritten rules?
1: Well, I I really think that um the unwritten rules can take over the culture they really can and i think to build an awareness of what the unwritten rules are whether they're positive or negative just to build that awareness makes you more accountable for really consciously creating the culture that you want you know um so for instance when when we um you know, tolerate some of the examples that, that I'm talking about here. Um, you know, to write them down and say, is this really something that we can get behind? Or is it not really who we are? Does this really represent who we are and what we want to be? You know, so I, I think by writing them down, it brings them into the spotlight and, and, and helps us to question is this really who we are? Is it who we want to be? If yes, then how do we get more of it? You know, if no, okay, what do we have to do differently?
0: Okay. You had talked earlier about one of the books you'd written. Um, You were kind enough to send me a copy of your book, Raising the Bar on Service Excellence. Um, In that book, you take the philosophy of Jim Collins's bestseller, Good to Great, where he looked at different organizations and industries and how to take them to the next level. Something interesting you do in your book is you look at that at the at that idea from the perspective of a healthcare setting. So, taking that into perspective, what do you believe are the cornerstones or the what's the foundation to take a practice from good to great?
1: Yeah, I think well, I, I also want to throw in some of the data. Okay. Um, when you look at uh, a five-point scale, Likert scale, and that is what most of the patient satisfaction surveys will have, the difference between the top performers is not—it's not determined by, you know, the numbers of, you know, the worst scoring ones, a heavy concentration there. It's really taking from good the fours and moving fours to five, you know, how do you do that? How do you move the fours to five? Um, I've I've talked a little bit, you know, about the importance of really being aware of, you know, what kind of organization you want to create. I think from a a high level, if we fly up to 30,000 feet, um, and by that, I mean, you know, The strategy level with the executive to sit down and define what do we want our culture to be you know and you know don't focus on the scores to define your success but rather you know you have to factor in other elements than just patient satisfaction scores you you know look at employee engagement look at you know, online reviews look at you know a lot of things, um, turnover rate, so that you're you're not just focused on the scores, which are lagging indicators, right? But I encourage you to fly up a little higher and define what kind of culture do we want around here, and how do you do that? You know, there's an exercise we bring people through in really helping define that vision for the culture of the future. Um, with that, you're, you're really trying to align. How are we going to live those values that we state? How are we going to treat each other? You know, treat our patients. How are we going to, uh, you know, live behaviors? How are we going to live out our brand promise, if you will? Um, and so, some of the things to do is to set that, that culture, vision for the culture of the future, then give concrete standards for how, what behaviors are you expecting of people that are non-negotiable? And then, how are people going to be held accountable? You know, so, it, it's defining, it's creating the behavior-based standards things that you can observe, that you can hire for, that you can say, these are the things that are non-negotiable in our organization. This is how we're gonna train people, right? You have to have solid training in place, but training is the beginning, not the end. So you also have to have leaders who know how to coach, mentor, model, manage for those service behaviors so that everybody's held accountable.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I, I really like that you're talking about uh, terms in using words like concrete examples because um culture it can be such a uh such an intangible aspect of any organization. Um you know, the tangible is well we have this x-ray machine or we have a physical person uh sitting at the front desk to greet people, but the culture part of it is just such an intangible, and it can be really elusive because you can put down all of these uh, ideas, and like you said, you can uh, put them in a plaque on the wall, and um, I was at an organization one time where we had about two or 300 employees in an auditorium, and our uh, the head of our company said, hey, who, who can Uh, tell us what our uh, mission statement is and out of 300 people (laughs) nobody raised a hand I mean it was on there you could see it but nobody you know really committed it to memory um, and embodied it so you were talking about having accountability how how do you go about doing that what are the steps you can take to make sure people are accountable um, to follow a particular culture that's put in place
1: First, you have to explain what you expect. Um, And and accountability starts with setting expectations, right? And unfortunately, um, not just in healthcare, but in leadership in general, a a lot of the people that I coach, I find that um, when they're disappointed in performance, that's when they make their expectations known instead of, flipping that around and you know it's like okay the you you explain your expectations after somebody fails to meet them now isn't that backward Mm -hmm. you know so accountability starts with explaining you know who we are what we stand for and these are the things that we expect everybody to live that in our medical practice this is what we firmly believe these are the behaviors that will live out those values. So let me give you an example. It's not enough to say, show respect, okay? So what does that mean, okay? If you're showing respect, it, if you're a, re, a registration person at the front desk, it means looking up, making eye contact, smiling and greeting the person approaching the desk. Okay, that is showing that you respect and recognize them, you're creating a warm welcome a provider respect may look a little bit different it's all those things plus did they return your phone call you know did they make the referral they said they were going to make did they you know are they showing respect for your time so again it's explaining exactly what it is that you expect and what what we stand for here you know you create what you call the way you know the Uh clinic or the practice way of doing
0: things yeah that that is such a a valid point I mean just having those put in place can make all the difference in the world and wanted you to walk us through then a real life example of a success story where uh, a practice has embraced and put in place these different um, cultural foundations and and made it work do you have a good example for us for that
1: I, yeah, I have I have several examples, but <laughs> let me give you one that is a small practice and one that's a very large, well-known practice. Okay. Okay? So my own physician, my own uh, family practitioner is a really good example. Um, a few years ago, he decided to break away from a system and decided that he wanted to hang out his own shingle, you know, and he took the time to really consciously define what he wanted that practice to be, what he wanted the culture to be. So he hired accordingly. He set up processes accordingly. You know, there are three categories or elements at play when, when you look at the patient experience. It's people, process, and place. And when I look at his practice, he had all of those three things come together to really shape the patient experience. You know, the, the people were hand-picked because he knew that they were people that would live out the values. You know, they're kind, they're thorough, they're efficient, they're attentive, they're smart, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everybody takes ownership to make the patient experience the best it can be. Um, so processes are in place um, so that it's efficient, effective. You know, communication doesn't break down. If I go on the portal and I ask a question, I get a I get a response. When I go online to try to schedule an appointment, if nothing's available, somebody calls me. You know, there are processes in place. You know, when I'm due for something, you know, I get a text message. I you know, I get reminders, you know, all of those things. And then the or then the environment itself, it's not the Taj Mahal by any means. But it's conducive to creating Um, privacy, efficiency, and calm, you know, which you want in a practice, right? And, you know, so he took into consideration people, process, and place when he structured this this business. And, um, you know, it's been very, very successful. I'm not telling you who it is, because I don't want any competition for those appointments. Right. (laughs) But, Um, That's an example on the small end, because I know a lot of our MGMA members have small practices, but I've also seen huge systems that have been very effective. And I'm going to use Mayo Clinic as an example. Um, As a family member, um, I've had many, many, many visits to Mayo Clinic over the course of the last decade, and I'm always amazed that they have a clear male way of doing things. You know, how they greet, how they schedule, how they um, organize the visit for you, uh, how the providers talk to the patient, the follow through. Um, You know, it's clear that in both these cases, whether it's the large organization or the small, the leaders have taken the the time to define the way, right? and when we talk about accountability, they constantly go back and and look, is it happening? They validate, you know, they validate, the managers validate, they validate, you know, through other means, getting feedback from patients, whatever ways they're using to validate, they're ensuring that they're really living up to their promise every step of the way.
0: Okay. Um You were talking about the MGMA member community earlier. If you know anything about them, you know that they love tools and takeaways for any uh, educational content. And uh, do you have anything, a guideline, a blueprint, a checklist, anything like that you could share with us on how to improve the patient experience?
1: I do. I do have a checklist that I'd be happy to share. What would be the best way to do that?
0: Yeah, so... We will house that on our podcast and on our website as well. We'll link it to this podcast episode. Um, Beyond that, is there an easy way for they for them to access it on uh, your uh, website as well, or we can just do that from our end?
1: You can do that from your end, and we'll link it back to to my website. But yes, I've got some tools Um, you mentioned. Yeah, tell us a little
0: bit about that.
1: Yeah. Over the course of the past decade, I um, have worked with organizations to create um, the medical practice of the future, basically was how it started, and um, to look at various touch points and what would be the must-haves of those touch points. So, um, the tool that I'm going to share is not the whole comprehensive um, package, but it'll give you the actual you know, what are the touch points um, and what would be some of the key things to focus on? So it would be the power of that first phone call. You know, what about um, the first impressions of the, you know, as they approach the building? What would be some, you know, these are things that we ascertain um, when we're mystery shopping and we've got tens of thousands of mystery shops that I draw on as I create these tools. Mm-hmm. So it'll be about those touch points and what would be the key elements to focus on.
0: Yeah, you had mentioned one of the items there you mentioned was the power of the first phone call. I know you've written on that. You have a white paper on that. Tell us a little bit about that. What is what is the power of the first phone call? What impact does it have on a patient or a potential patient?
1: Yeah, it's amazing. I, you know, um, it, it makes or breaks whether or not they're gonna become a patient because when they dial the phone, if, if it's a first contact, they're not your patient. They're a consumer and they're still shopping, right? And so when you look at patient satisfaction data, that is people talking about their experience when they've been a patient with you. Nobody's been measuring the ones that got away so unless you're not concerned with building volume or you know um, building your business, um, phone calls are really important. And you know, even though we have a lot of organizations that can do some online scheduling, there's still phone calls where people are calling and asking questions. Maybe everything wasn't answered by the website. And so when they pick up the phone, um, it's usually for two reasons. One is to ask for information and the other is to um, schedule an appointment. And I'm not ca- talking about prescriptions, but I'm, I'm saying a new patient is gonna call for those two reasons typically. And as we called the data from thousands of phone calls, we looked at what were um, some of the things that, that really made or, or would make or break that phone call. Um, and we were shocked to find that 35% of those initial phone calls aren't likely to call back and become a patient, uh, uh, become a patient. Um, 35%. Wow. And they, that was correlated with a number of things. Um, so it's it correlated with even things like um, how they were greeted in that initial um, part of the phone call, how they closed the call. You know, and I, I always talk about um, the open and close, the greeting and closure are like two bookends um, for, you know, housing that entire phone encounter. And so often, you know, people will focus on, you know, the greeting, um, but not on the closure. And that's your lasting, last impression.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: it, it's funny, you know, we were able to run data on um, how likely somebody is to return as a patient based on the greeting and based on the closing and based on the access to appointment and based on whether or not they were interrupted. You know, it, it's amazing that when you really um, analyze that phone experience, there are so many elements of it that, um, you know, you might think are insignificant, but they're not.
0: Right. I, I wanted to make... Uh Every, all of our listeners aware, we will have a link to that checklist. So if you want to uh, access that information when you are listening to the podcast in our notes section, uh, that, in, that link will be there for you. So thanks for providing that for us, Kristen. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, final thought here, because anytime you make change of uh, any significance in an organization, it can be daunting. So You've, you've provided so much information with us today, but what are just some first steps uh, a practice can do to kind of begin writing the ship or just make those incremental improvements?
1: Yeah, um, it's, it's really defining what do we wanna be when we grow up, okay? And, and one of the best ways to do that is to think about, you know, what do we want our patients to say, right? What do we want when, when people walk out of here or end a phone call, what do we want them to say about their experience with us, you know? Um, and how close are we right now? If these are the things that we really want them to say, how are we doing right now? You know, that that is a, a really good way to put your finger on the pulse, is, is to think big, blue sky for a bit. What do we want them to say? And then not just think about Patients. What do we want them to say? But also think about what do we want our employees to talk about? What do we want them to say about what it's like working here? And what do we want our providers to say about what it's like working here? You know, so, so think about those various stakeholders. I would start with that as, as a conversation. You know, there's an exercise that we do with organizations to kind of walk them through that process and help them make sense of it. But, you know, it, it's too long for me to go through here. But that's just a quick flyover. You know, You know, let me just say that, you know, get everybody together and start to define what it is you want to be when you grow up. <laughs>
0: Kristen Baird, consultant, author, speaker, and president and CEO of the Baird Group, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Well, it's great to talk with you, and thank you for inviting me to participate.
0: Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Kristen Baird. Check out the summary of this episode or visit bairdgroup.com resources to browse Kristen's library of tools, articles, videos, blogs, and white papers. That's baird-group.com resources. Also, don't forget to reserve your spot at MGMA 20, the Financial Conference, March 5th through 7th in Nashville. To learn more, to register, visit mgma.com/tfc20. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast@mgma.com at or find me on Twitter at mgma_daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams.